Welcome to the Chris Lockwood Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lockwood, with special guest, Stephen Mansfield. Well, welcome back to the Chris Lockwood Podcast. So glad you're here. I'm so honored, and I hope you're having a fantastic week. Well, today my guest is Stephen Mansfield. He's a celebrated speaker, a Fox News and CNN commentator. He owns a leadership company, appropriately called The Mansfield Group, and he's a New York Times bestselling author of the book The Faith of George W. Bush, among many other award-winning books, including the most recent one entitled Ask the Question, While We Must Demand Religious Clarity from Our Presidential Candidates, which is no doubt incredibly relevant to the political season we're currently in here in the United States. I'm very thankful to Stephen for taking the time to being on the podcast. Uh, Now, this one is a little different because this is my first recorded conversation over Skype. So the audio is a little off, but it worked out. Uh, After doing some research, I will indeed be better prepared in the future to get a stronger quality in audio uh, the next time I do a Skype podcast. But nonetheless, this is a fantastic conversation. Uh, Due to Stephen's busy schedule, I only had an hour with him, but it's definitely time well spent. Uh, Believe it or not, an hour flies by quick, so we weren't able to dig into a story as much as you're used to if you've been following me, but regardless, I know you're going to enjoy it as I did. If you're interested in connecting with or following Stephen, I'll have all of his social media links in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in reading any of his books, I'll have links to his books on Amazon. Uh, Please use the links if you're interested in purchasing any of his books, which I highly recommend. I read his new one uh, as I prepared for the podcast. I just wrapped up the first book he ever wrote, which is on Winston Churchill, and I'm about to start his New York Times bestseller, The Faith of George W. Bush. And I gotta say, this guy knows how to write a good book, so I look forward to that one. I want to thank Stephen again for coming on to the show, but I also want to thank you, everybody out there, for listening. I do this for you. I love you. I hope it helps you as you walk out your faith journey. So without further ado, the man of the hour, Mr. Stephen Mansfield. Um, Well, okay, so I'm looking at New York Times bestselling author, a celebrated public speaker, uh, media training firm, pastor of a mega church, uh, have been, and uh, and also um, Zig Ziglar deemed you one of the most amazing speakers he'd ever heard. And so I'm curious, are you tired because of all the stuff that you're involved in? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm actually energized. It's a great time to be alive. So glad for all of it. That's great. Now, you're born in Georgia, but you grew up in Europe. Is that correct? I did. You know, my father was a military officer and uh, was Colonel Special Forces. So we grew up, at, I spent lots of years in Germany and mainly in Berlin, Germany wow. uh, during the Cold War. Very interesting to grow up, you know, behind the Iron Curtain and looking over the wall at uh, East German and Soviet soldiers and taking the duty train through communist territory to go play basketball with other American high schools and all that kind of thing. So very unusual upbringing. Yeah. Give me a snapshot of what life was like then. Well, I mean, if you know the history of the story of Berlin, Berlin after World War II ended up being the city of freedom in communist territory. Uh, So my father was, again, an intelligence officer for the most part, special forces, and uh, he was assigned uh, as one of the higher commanders there in Berlin when I was there. So now you're going to an American high school in a German city. 
Uh, you're surrounded by communists. Uh, there's, a, there's a wall around the city that's surrounded by communists. Uh, often I was awakened in the early morning hours by gunfire, mm. by tanks going down cobblestone streets. I mean, it's very unusual. Uh, when we were going to play basketball with our American high school against another American high school in, in the zone, what we called the zone, which was the uh, broader area of Germany, the free area of Germany, we would take a, a train called the duty train and go through, go through communist territory. So that scene that you see in movies where the East Germans and the Russians, or probably more likely the Nazis, have got dogs and mirrors and guns and they're just inspecting trains late at night, that was my weekly experience, to be on a train being checked out like that to make sure nobody was escaping. So it was, it was uh, uh, an amazing way to grow up because it made me aware of the price of freedom, mm -hmm. it made me aware of the power of America, and it made me aware of the role that uh, we, you know, we can all play. Uh, in these things, so big, big global issues, big worldview, philosophical, uh, governmental systems were in contention right there in Berlin for so many decades, and it was exciting to be there. Goodness gracious! Now, I listened to your podcast, The Grand Mall Strategy, and it's about practicality and being prepared for the days ahead here in the states. But you start out talking about your dad kind of giving you uh, some practical advice on living in Germany. I just found that very interesting. Why don't you kind of share a little bit of that story? Well, it's the kind of experience that most American kids don't have. We land in Berlin. My father uh, was the G2, which is the senior uh, military intelligence officer there in Berlin. And so he's known by the Russians. He's known by the East Germans. Uh, and I'm his son, uh, a little bit visible because I was a pretty decent athlete. So he said, now, son, you know, there are places you can go in Berlin and places you can't. Uh, because the, the U-Bahn, the subway, literally went under communist territory or stopped at former at, at, at U-Bahn stops that were, in, you know, abutted communist territory. So sometimes it was possible for the East Germans or the Russians to stop the trains and take people off of them. And he was concerned that I might be taken off because that would have created a real crisis. So all of that to say that, um, you know, he told me what to do if I was being followed. He told me what to do if, uh, if, I, if, if the train I was on got stopped. Um, he actually did a, I dated a couple of German girls because I spoke German at the time pretty fluently. And um, he, he told me, he actually did background checks on those German girls and their families <laughs> to make sure I wasn't being set up. Oh I mean, gosh. it was a very, very unusual upbringing, but I'm very grateful for it. Unreal. Obviously, those years overseas provided you, you probably didn't see it then, but incredible insight and perspective in regards to preparing for the career path you've been on. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a direct connection between my years in Berlin and my, with my life now. Uh, part of it was that we were not just there in, in communist territory, but we were also there during some really horrendous uh, episodes in uh, the history of, of the contest of the West with uh, Islam and uh, radical Palestinian forces and so on. For example, I was there in the early 70s, so uh, the Bader-Meinhof gang was blowing things up left and right, and our school had a bomb threat almost every week. Yeah. Um, yeah, and most 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 kids who go to school in America their whole lives never have a bomb threat. We had one almost every week, and that involved, by the way, military police showing up, choppers landing on the football field. I mean, it was all pretty frontline stuff. At the same time, uh, while we were in Berlin, was when the '72 Munich Olympics occurred, uh, when the Israeli wrestling team was killed by Palestinian yeah. extremists, and my father was called out to alert on that. So. You know, you're living kind of on the front lines. What you're reading in the papers, your father's involved in, and it's affecting your daily life. And, you know, we would get lectures from our high school teachers in the mornings. Now, be careful today and listen for the alarms. And, 
you know, that kind of thing. So I don't want to give the impression that we were in a war zone. I mean, Berlin was a beautiful, wonderful Western city with lots of art, museums, and great food and music and so on. At the same time, though, it could get real dangerous real quick. And, you know, I was there for all that. So there's no question that in terms of understanding the forces of history, in terms of understanding the role of America in the world, in terms of understanding international issues, all of that was playing out, you know, from a very early age in my life. Yeah, goodness gracious. Now, you guys came back to the States when? We actually moved back to the States in 1974, which was interesting for me because it was right after my sophomore year of high school. So right in the middle of my high school career, we moved from Berlin, Germany, to West Des Moines, Iowa. And man, oh man, was that a big jump. <laughs> um, my high school in Berlin, Germany, was maybe 500 American kids with a few Brits and others thrown in, all of us close. Um, the high school I went to in West Des Moines was gigantic. It literally had and still has a quarter-mile-long hallway, um, and it was, I think, a couple of thousand kids. So it was a big, rich, you know, suburban, uh, gigantic, football-power kind of high school. And, man, I had, to, I had to up my game pretty quickly. Oh, I bet. So you, you, you're, you get here sophomore year, you then went to college in Texas, is that right? No, actually, I went to college in uh, Oklahoma. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I, I finished high school in West Des Moines. Uh, only the, I only went the last 18 months. I graduated a semester early just because as, as much as I loved my friends, I was ahead academically, believe it or not, so I could finish early and then work, work, earn money for college. Went to college in, in uh, Oklahoma, and then I moved out to Texas and lived in Abilene, Texas for the first decade after my college career. Okay, okay. Now you studied, your undergraduate work was philosophy and history, is that correct? Yeah, I majored in history, uh, mainly American history, and then uh, did, an, I did a minor in philosophy. What inspired that? You know, I read a book. I, I, I'm one of those unusual people where one book can really change my thinking about things. I read a book called The Oral Autobiography of Harry Truman, written by Merle Miller. It was a, basically a biography of Harry Truman, completely comprised out of interviews with him and with those who knew him. Uh, and it was the time that oral, oral projects, oral history was really on the rise. And um, I was impressed by Harry Truman's use of history. Um, he was, he's the only president we had in the last century who never went to college. Uh, but he read history voraciously. And that knowledge of history helped him to lead. And he led through some of the most troublesome time in our American history right after World War II. So when I read that, even though I was heading towards majoring in other things, mainly heading towards pre-law, I thought, you know, I, I'm going to major in history. Whatever else I do in life, uh, learning history, knowing history, studying history, understanding the past, uh, it'll, it'll have a real impact. It'll help me to, to do whatever I do, you know, whatever it is. Whether it's work construction, I'll, I'll live a richer life knowing history if I, you know, if I'm a lawyer, uh, whatever I do. And yeah. so it, it was a perfect choice for me. Yeah, so you, you didn't really have a clear trajectory on the course that your life was going to take. No, not at all. I wanted to do good. I, I thought I had some leadership gifts, but um, you know what? I just had no idea. I knew I was supposed to go to college, and that's as far as it went. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, um, what practical advice you know for a young man today would you would you give in as he's preparing to enter into the workforce? Well, I, I think that you want to combine in your academics, especially if you're going to college. You want to combine. Uh, understanding the world, but also preparing for something practical. 
Um, and if I had my choice, if I had to do it over again in my bachelor's degree, I would still major in history, but I would probably have minored in something where I got a certification or did something where I could be practical. Now, yeah. for me, it worked out just fine. Um, I married a girl, and her parents had started a church in West Texas, and I became the head of that church, you know, the senior pastor of that church not too long afterwards. And it's a great learning experience for me. I earned a couple of master's degrees along the way and then a doctorate, and it all worked out just fine. But I, 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 I think, I believe two things about college at one time. One is that we ought to be studying broadly and understanding the world. The other is that we ought to try to get practical mm. and get certifications and get qualifications and things we care about. There are some things I wish that I um, was, was certified in, for example. I mean, why can't I be a historian uh, who's passed the CPA exam? Yeah. You know? Why yeah. can't I be a historian who also um, has a certification in speech pathology? I do a lot of media training these days. And I, I, I wish that I understood speech pathologies a little bit better. So you know what I'm saying. Just uh, we can do both at once. But but the main thing I think I would say to people, especially young people who are heading into the job force these days, is that self-education is one of the greatest skills you can have. Yeah. You know, do you have the ability to teach yourself? The likelihood is you're going to have to reinvent yourself again and again. The likelihood is the job you're working uh, when you first come out of college is not what you'll do next. You'll morph, you'll evolve, you'll, you'll do other things that build on your previous experience but require you to learn new things. And so, I mean, I actually want to write a book on this topic and track some of the great self-educators through history and talk about the skills of self-education. But um, one of the most important things to emphasize is that you have the ability to teach yourself. And, yeah. and I, I don't want to go off too long about this, but, but one of the things that excites me about the technology that we're all using is that it's an educational revolution as much as it's a technological revolution. You know, I'm sitting here at my desk in my office in Nashville, Tennessee. I've got all kinds of Mac technology around me. Um, you and I are talking, at least on my end, on Mac technology. Um, and I've never taken a course or read a book to uh, to learn any of that. Yeah. I, I learned it by investigating, just diving in. I learned it by asking questions. I learned, I learned it by going on websites. In other words, we are all forced to teach ourselves when it comes to technology. Well, how about politics? How about international affairs? How about economics? How about healthcare? Uh, you know, how about accounting? All that kind of thing. I'm not saying schools aren't important, but man, uh, what's the stat now? Uh, knowledge doubles about every three years. Yeah. And so we're going to have to really know how to educate ourselves. So there's my old man lecture for you about uh, what to do when you leave and head down to the job force. No, you know, I mean, I'm. Uh, it's funny. I'm. I'm polar opposite. I've been a musician uh, for the last twenty professional working musician for the last twenty years. But I've di recently discovered the value and a love for history over the, like the last five years, where I'm reading a lot of books. On history, and so like I totally agree. Like the value of knowing, you know, uh, the struggle and the lessons learned, and it, like all of that. Like it, it having the balance of practicality, and then also the history of reading about people who have made mistakes, maybe that you <laughs> you're about to walk into if you didn't know about, you know, the situation. Uh, is very valuable. But uh, the other day, it's funny. I actually gave the, uh, a speech to some students, and I told them. You know, the thing about my uh, generation is that we had excuses for not learning stuff. And the pressure on the kids today is that they have no excuse. Like, if they don't know something, it's probably due strictly to laziness because everything that they would want to know is right at their fingertips. Yeah, it's just amazing. And so, 
you know, the thing that should drive that is just like, just exactly like in your case, uh, interest, uh, intellectual hunger, a desire to know more. Part of the problem with living in a society where knowledge is just thrown at you is you can just get weary of it and go yeah. watch, you know, reruns of Friends or something. <laughs> and um, and but the but the fact is you've developed an interest in history. Well, somebody else might develop an interest in, you know, who knows, uh, some other field. But the point is, learn. Uh, I, I had a very wise man tell me one time that one of his goals was to choose something that he could know about, know more about than anybody else. Hmm. And and he said he said, what's the one thing? that I can really study up and know more about than anybody else. And his point not, was not really to show off and know more than other people. His point was to find something he was motivated about. Yeah. And I love reading and studying history and international affairs and, you know, that kind of thing. I'm really, really engaged by, you know, foreign policy and history and the development of nations and all that kind of thing, cultures. Uh, I just read voraciously in that area. And then every so often I'll read a novel just to tell my brain to relax. Um, <laughs> but but ha man, have a passion. Ha ha have an interest. I, I love guys like you, and I'm not just trying to stroke you here, but I love guys like you because here you are, a, a musician on the one hand, and yet you're reading history. Well, those are two very diverse things. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I want you to do all that and mountain climb, you yeah. know, and, uh, and learn how, and learn Chinese cooking, you know, and you know what I'm saying? Let's let one of the, one of the great writers, Ray Bradbury said specialization is for insects. And so, um, I love that, that concept, you know? Yeah. You know, I think, uh, what also for me put things into perspective is when you get married and then I'm the dad of three kids. And so having kids, you know, puts a lot of things into perspective. And all of a sudden you start looking at like me being a musician, as much as I've loved the successes and the ride, you go, what value am I really creating? And how am I really helping better the future for my children? You know, so, um, at so, the yeah. same time, at the same time, let me just cut it in and say, you know, guys your age need to relax about that kind of stuff because, <laughs> uh, Honestly, there are there are seasons to life. Yeah. Now I'm 58 years old, and I'm not anywhere near the end of my life, but I'm definitely past some major seasons. My kids are 27 and 30 years old. Um, you know, they're off in DC and New York and mm. careers. We're all very close and love each other, but I'm I'm not in the child raising era. Yeah. When I want when I want to go see a Disney movie, I rent a kid from one of my friends. <laughs> um, so I, you know, don't. I don't think we need to pressure ourselves that every season of our lives has to be equally fruitful about public things. Right. I'm, I'm very public now, but but that's because I, you know, I invested at home and I, I, you know, raised kids and et cetera, et cetera. So just, you know, to all of those who are like you, lighten up. You know, there are times when you're you're about your wife and your kids and making the paying the bills, and that's okay for a season. And then then you can continue to sharpen yourself and do even greater things down the road. That's good. Now, in 91, you were pastor of Belmont Church, is that right? Yes, I was the senior pastor of Belmont Church for a lot of years in Nashville, and prior to that, I was the senior pastor of a church in Abilene, Texas, because I apparently had sinned in a previous life. And so, <laughs> I'm, I'm just playing, I'm just playing. But, um, yeah, I, I was, I, my first 20 years of professional life, I was the number one or number two pastor at two different churches. So, was, was that ever on your radar? Never. Yeah. Um, I, in my undergraduate work, like I said, I was fascinated with a lot of fields, but I was basically thinking I would go to law school. Um, and I married a girl whose parents started a church in Abilene, and I, I ended up marrying her and going out there and helping them, thinking I'd do that for a few years uh, and then go on to, to law school. I had been accepted at law school at Notre Dame. Yeah. 
And uh, instead, I've lost my heart to, uh, to the combination of pastoring people and teaching people. Um, I met some scholars at a university there in Abilene who really mentored me and uh, directed me in my next couple of master's degrees. Um, eventually, I got a doctorate in the same field, and that's the field I've been writing in. So while I'm grateful for all the years pastoring and teaching, it was by following that direction and guidance from the Lord that got me to, into the into the study of the field that I've now written, you know, a couple of dozen books on. Yeah. Now, what was what would you say was the most difficult thing you had to come to terms with when you started pastoring? Um, to be to be real honest with you, it was the way people, especially in Southern culture, orient to pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's going to sound a little cold. I, I love the South. I'm a Southerner, born in Columbus, Georgia. But I have to say that there's a you, you cease to be the individual that they just have to engage you know across the table in, in kind of a respectful human way and you become like the person they can say anything to no matter how hurtful um, you know you yeah. kind of, they kind of see you as their servant and I, and I, I understand we're all meant to serve each other but um, there, there's a way that people can orient to you where now you're the pastor now you're the clergy now you're the preacher and they can uh, dump on you, they can hurt you, they can, yeah. uh, I don't know, there's just a, a shift. So if I'm Stephen Mansfield, uh, if, let, me, let me just be risk a little arrogance here for a moment. If I'm Pastor Stephen, for some people that means one thing. If I'm Dr. Mansfield, that's a whole different thing. Right. Now why is that? Yeah. <laughs> why yeah. is that? Why, how, how do we end up at two different levels of treatment with me just changing titles? You know, uh, both <laughs> of them are legitimate. So... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not angry or bitter. I had great experiences and, and uh, completed my pastoral career with great uh, joy and gratitude. But um, that was the hardest thing, especially in a smaller West Texas town. If you were a pastor, man, suddenly you had people who didn't like you, thought you were a heretic. People in your own church would speak to you a certain way because they were mad about the color of the carpet. Yeah. And I, it took me years to catch up on that. And, um, and I still think it's an unproductive part of our, our church cultures, but you know, that's, yeah. that, that was the hardest thing for me. For somebody else, it might have been something else. Um, in regards to leadership, since you're passionate about that, how was your ability to lead most challenged uh, and improved during that time? I learned a lot about leadership, and I made a lot of mistakes, I don't mind saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I, uh, born in the South, but very much a Yankee in my family culture and background, and so I'm pretty, pretty plain-spoken. Uh, and you can't get up in front of a bunch of people from Abilene, Texas, and say you don't like Abilene, Texas, <laughs> or, or make jokes about you know here we are in the sticks. Uh, there, you know, there's history happening out there in the real world, but gosh, here we are, and kind of put on the stage or put into your sermon your disappointment with where you're living at the time. Oh my goodness! And people want to know that you believe in them, that you care about the community, that you care about them. And I did care about them, but my Yankee bluntness and sense of humor didn't serve me well. Yeah. So uh, it wasn't that I had to learn how to act or be other than I really was. I had to learn how to put a guard over my mouth and love people and love people with my words and not just see words as something I could vomit out anytime I wanted to. Yeah. And that, that dramatically changed uh, my leadership. And mm. I'll have to say, too, that I'm, I'm by nature an introvert. Um, I'm one of those introverts that can do well in public but then needs to get back to his cave. And so the pastorate, um, initially, I didn't know how to manage that. You know, I, I, when you're an introvert, you can love people and be great with them, but they also drain you, and you have to know how to manage your rest and restoration. I didn't do that well, right. so I, I would start to treat people like, "Look, love you, but go away. You know, take, <laughs> take, 
take two of my tapes and call me in the morning. Kind of, you know? Yeah. And um, that, that, didn't, that didn't endear me to people initially. But, I mean, I got over it, and the church exploded, and we did well. But, uh, but these are some of the lessons I had to learn. Yeah, initially. absolutely. You know, the pressures of leading a church, I would imagine, obviously are not easy, especially in today's society where it's rapidly changing and in many ways continues to turn a blind eye and deaf ear to really anything the church has to say, or it seems that way. So, you know, that being said, said, what encouragement or practical advice can you give to pastors? Uh, I think that pastors, first of all, need to know themselves and uh, tend their their personal needs while they're helping the people, uh, mm-hmm. like, I, like I had to learn how to do. Make sure I get the rest, make sure I get the alone time, etc. The second thing is most pastors walk alone, and they shouldn't. You need a band of brothers, band of sisters. You need a band of people around you who love you but aren't afraid of you, preferably friends from outside your church who treat you normally, don't either worship you or beat on you, um, and want to help you be your best while you guys have a lot of fun along the way. Yeah. And the, But then the other thing about I would say is that we're in a stage of church life in America where we have to earn the right to be heard. Mm. And the thing that we did right in our church in Abilene is that we started a thing called Isaiah 58, uh, which was a ministry to the poor and the needy. Um, at that time, we could actually go collect food, unused food from restaurants. I think a lot of a lot of organizations wouldn't do that now because of lawsuits, but there are other ways you can do it. And we fed lots of people and took care of lots of people. And that won us a place to be heard in the society. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's good. And so younger, the younger generation now, millennials we call them, uh, are, with their orientation on social relevance, I think they're going to help push the church towards a more socially relevant uh, orientation. We're not just, you know, huddling up on Sunday morning uh, to do what we usually do. We're really going to break out and get outside the four walls of the church and make a difference in society. Um, that was one of the things we did well, and our church grew, and we had an impact on society as a result. Um, and so that's uh, th- those are the things I think pastors need to keep an eye on. Preach the gospel. Uh, be, be good leaders within your church. But don't walk alone. Take care of yourself. Horrible damage is happening these days as pastors are crashing. Yeah. And and make sure that you're outreach-oriented in a practical way. Yeah. You you have a company called the Mansfield Group, and it it says you, you specialize in speech writing, public speaking, brand linguistics, and media crisis consulting. Uh, you having been a pastor but also very much in the public square, I'm curious how you think the church as a whole can better engage society and be more an effective presence. Is that through service, like you just said, to earn your way, uh, and and then you know, then move forward with whatever the goals are? I guess. Yeah, the way I would say it is that we 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 want to we want to proclaim our gospel and teach teach and make disciples. At the same time, we want to earn a place to be heard, as I said, yeah. uh, while we while we reach out to society. Then I'm always saying to people, well, once we earn a place to be heard. Do we know how to communicate well to the society as it is now? Right, um, and that is an area I like to help people, not just in the church, but of course, you know, we work with a lot of politicians and everybody, uh, pro athletes, CEOs, everybody, helping them communicate better. And um, I'm a big believer in that, and I, I think that one of the things we have to watch in in church world, which which I which I love, but we have to watch the downside of it, which is that we can become very enculturated, um, and we we can speak that way. Like if you're on the Sean Hannity show. And he says, how are you doing? You go, well, I'm blessed. You know, kind of thing. Well, <laughs> I mean, that. that might be appropriate on Sunday morning, I guess, in some churches, but Sean's going to look at you like you lost your mind, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, if, and if Sean asks me, as he often has, 
you know, well, why'd you write this book? Well, I just felt like the Lord told me to, you know. <laughs> now, now you understand, I believe in that. I yeah. believe in that. And that might even be the truth. But that's not the way you articulate it in a context like that. Right. And so help, helping people speak well in general and then helping them think through their context and their, uh, their you know, their, their, their basic orientation on communication uh, is a lot of what we do. Yeah. What do, you, what do you find is the most common obstacle standing in the way of people being becoming more effective communicators? Uh, two things. Most people are unaware, because nobody's ever really worked with them, of what we call the tele. We're taking that from the Greek word T-E-L-E, which means what you tra- what's transmitted. You know, it's the, it's the prefix at the beginning of the word telephone or telegraph right. or what have you. Um, and it means, for example, you, Chris, I can't see you right now, but when if you're just standing on stage, what do you telegraph just by virtue of your look mm-hmm. before you say anything. Right. Um, for some people, that's something that's got to be overcome. For some people, it's something that's got to be considered. And I mean, a black woman has a different situation than a white, blonde-haired, millennial guy has a different situation than a guy who's speaking from a wheelchair has a different situation than a guy who's got a Middle Eastern accent has a different situation from a yarmulke-wearing Jew with a British accent. You, you see what I mean? Yeah. Every, everybody presents differently, different bodies, different skin colors. And so I make people stand on stage and I say, just, just we need, you need to become aware of what it is that you transmit without saying a word, because that's something that, that can be a tool for you if you know it. And then the second thing is help people understand their culture of communication. Um, some people come from backgrounds where it's loud and hard-hitting, but you never explain anything. So the outsider is always going, what, what, what? Yeah. And so I've got to help them understand that. Some people are incredibly smart and use big words, but you know they want to run for office in Indiana. Well, there are smart people in Indiana, but you're not going to run for office by being the egghead. You know? right. And so uh, it's two things. What do they transmit wordlessly? And then what has been their word culture, so to speak, their verbal culture as they've come up through life? And once we get a hold on that, then it's all a matter of looking at who they're talking to, what they want to be, uh, how they want to be branded and how we communicate that. But those are the two things where I think I've been able to help most people. That yeah. work with. That's good. Uh, this may be another way of asking the same questions, but, uh, but what, what would you say is the one thing influential and effective communicators cannot sacrifice? Humor. Yeah. Humor. Uh, you can, you can do a lot of things. You can be a lot of different personalities. You can communicate in a lot of ways, but the two things, the one thing you can't sacrifice is humor. If I can put a, if I can put a part two on that, it would be story. Hmm. Um, you know, I've been watching the conventions because we've actually worked with some of the people who gave some of those speeches. And, uh, I'll tell you the difference between somebody who can tell a story rather than just get up there and spout political ammunition, so to speak, uh, is night and day. Yeah. Um, when I watched uh, Morning Joe this morning, which is a show I watch most every morning about politics, and they're talking about what the powerful moments were in the, in the Democratic Convention here recently, um, every single one of them has to do with story. It's the Muslim dad who's got, who has a Marine son who was killed, and now he's telling his story. Yeah. That's what's remembered, not when a politician says, and we're going to drop welfare by 3%, you know, that kind of thing. People might applaud but come next Monday morning, nobody's going to remember that that was said. But they will remember that Muslim dad who gave up his son and then held up a, a copy of the Constitution and chastised uh, the opposing, opposing politician for not reading it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's, that's, that kind of thing lives on. And it's more, it sounds like it's more the, the authenticity of the story too, huh? 
Yes, I'm a, I am a big believer. I proclaim this all the time to our clients, uh, that you are most powerful when you are most authentic. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's some things you have to learn. There's some ways of communicating you might have to master, but not trying to be other than you are. And the reason that moment at the Democratic Convention with that Muslim dad was so powerful is it was authentic. Mm-hmm. He, had sac- he was an American Muslim who had lost his son in war, and he was mad at the opposing politician because the opposing politician would have probably banned his son from the country. And so he, this, guy, this dad pulled a copy of the Constitution out of his jacket and said, here, you need to read the Constitution. I'll loan you mine. Well, to have an American Muslim telling an American politician why don't you read the Constitution as I read it? That's why I'm proud to be an American. I mean, that just that just blows up all the boundaries that people have in their brains. Yeah, it's a powerful moment. But as a, as a as a speech coach, he did three or four things very powerfully. He had a story. He had a you know he actually had show and tell. He had a physical object, um, and he and he won emotions. And he also used some humor and sarcasm. Well, that that moment, I assure you, we'll be talking about in 20 years. Yeah, that's great. Now, um, just switching gears, you're, uh, I know you love to hear this all the time, you're an award-winning New York Times best-selling author. Uh, but when did you, you say that again? <laughs> That's what I thought. That's what I thought. That over and over again. <laughs> when, did you, uh, when did you get the itch for writing? You know, I didn't have an itch for writing at first. Um, I had an itch for reading, and then I became a pastor, as we've discussed, and I had an itch for communicating well verbally. And as I tried to master the art of verbal communication, that's when I fell in love with the power of the written word. Yeah. So it's kind of a weird progression in my life. I loved reading and knowledge and history. Then I loved verbal communication and speech making and the power of the spoken word. And I'd listen to Churchill's speeches and so on. But it was only then that I began to think, well, maybe I could write some books that can become the words that other people speak. Yeah. And so I began writing. And I've had an extremely blessed, and I, I use that word advisedly, an extremely blessed writing career. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm uh, actually am a third of the way into your first book, which is Never Give In, The Extraordinary Character of Winston Churchill. And I'm sure there's a million worthy reasons as to why one would, but what would? What about uh, Winston Churchill inspired you to make this the focus of your first book? You know, it, we all know that Churchill was the great leader, you know, during World War II and the dropping of the Iron Curtain and we, we all know that he was exceptional. For me, it was that I had read enough to know what he had to overcome to get there. Yeah. Um, my concern is that a lot of people talk themselves out of leadership because they, you know, whatever, they've got flaws, they aren't, they didn't go to college, they have a criminal past, they've been bankrupt, whatever the negative is in their mind. Well, Churchill had unbelievable challenges. He did poorly in school, he was a stutterer, his father hated him. You know, he wasn't really wasn't smart enough to go to Oxford or Cambridge, so he went to the Military Academy of England. And you know, I mean, so even when he was Prime Minister of England, he had black what he called black dog depressions. And he, he even when he was visiting the White House, he would refuse to stay in a room with a balcony on it. He was afraid a depression would hit; he might throw himself off and kill himself. And that's that's why he was leading the Western world against the Nazis. So it's the fact that he's so flawed, and he had to overcome his flaws. Uh, to become a great leader that I think is most inspiring. So I want every, not just every kid, but every person uh, who's got any kind of gift or purpose or calling, whatever you want to call it, to to make a difference on this earth, to not talk themselves out of it because they've had some failures or or they have some flaws. And I think Churchill, great as he was, is the exemplar of that. Yeah, 
That's good. You know, this this may be a goofy question, but you know, he left an incredible legacy and you know, maybe it was the perfect storm of events that made him stand out, but why does it seem like we're not seeing a lot of Winston Churchills today? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think there are people who are Churchill-like who aren't just uh, just widely known, but a lot of it has to do, um, that, and this is going to sound very harsh, but I don't mean it this way, is with our comfort culture. C- uh, Churchill saw hard things as, as things to attack, things to overcome, things to master in himself. Um, our comfort culture, our ease culture, can make us declare, you know, kind of run up the white flag and just surrender in the yeah. face of a challenge. Yeah. Uh, let's say that I'm a, I've got a real bad stutter. Well, you know, I might just retreat from society. I might just not, you know, exert myself. I might not try to overcome that. One of the finest young leaders I know was a stutterer most of his life and has only recently overcome it. He's having a huge impact here in the national area. Mm. Um, That's Churchill-like. So I I think the reason we don't see it as much today um, is is mainly because by the time Churchill became public, he had already overcome so much, already mastered himself in so many ways, already fought through the dark night of the soul so many times, it was as though he had dug a well of inspiration to give to others in challenge. And that's, that's really the issue. I mean, I don't want to get into politics at this moment, but who on the national scene has suffered personally, fought personal battles, and now has a well of inspiration to offer to the rest of us in these troubled times? Wow. That, that, that's Churchillian leadership, but it's not the way we tend to think of our leaders these days. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, another couple of your books I'm very interested in reading is uh, The Faith of George W. Bush and The Faith of Barack Obama. And uh, what, one, what is the research process like on books like this where you're trying to get the most substantial evidence you can find while not tarnishing the truth in the process? Well, let me say, first of all, you have to read 10 of my books or you will not go to heaven. <laughs> it's important that you get that straight. Um, yeah, I, you know, one of the things I guess, that I'm known for, and I'm, and I'm grateful for it, is that I try to write objectively. Yeah. I'm, I definitely have my opinions, and I, nobody can keep those from coming out. But I try to just tell the story and let it speak for itself. So the research phase is really, really important. Um, and so in both of those books that you mentioned, the Bush book and the Obama book, we did extensive research. We interviewed everyone. We worked hard to get access. We talked to people nobody else talked to. When I say we, though, I write every word of my books uh, because some of them are so extensive in research. I, I have a research team that I you know, enlist and I wake them up from their beds and tell them they can't sleep for another six months <laughs> and then I get them busy. Um, and so, I mean, literally, I was flying people all over the country doing interviews and get, breaking out stories. And um, that... That is what allows me then to digest all of that. Of course, I'm doing a lot of the research too, and then and then write. And um, the, my goal is to let the powerful story uh, be told, yeah. and then people can draw their own conclusions. Some folks misunderstand because I'm not just bashing the person in my book constantly. They think I'm in favor of them, um, but I'm just trying to tell the story straight. Yeah. And that's that's been one of the real hallmarks of my writing, and I'm, and I'm very grateful for that. It's, it's given me a hearing on both sides of the political aisle and, and internationally, too. Yeah. Were you, uh, were you able to shadow or interview Bush or Obama? I've met them both, um, and I did interview them, but I'll have to tell you that in my view, especially when you're talking about faith, 
the the individual is often not the best person to tell you their faith story. Really? Isn't that weird? It's very weird. It's very weird. Um, maybe it was just these two. Certainly in George W. Bush's case, you know, he's he's a guy, even though he's very intelligent, has a very high IQ. If you say, well, what were you thinking back then? Go, oh, I don't know. I just I just decided that's what needed to happen. You know, you're going, well, sir, I'm trying to write a book here. If you could help me out, but he's um, they they aren't. Some people aren't very reflective. Yeah. Um, uh, they aren't very. They don't think in terms of story. I can think of a bunch of people I know, even among friends my age and younger, who just wouldn't be the best person to tell their own story or to tell me their story so I could write it. So I didn't find that to be that helpful. I found friends. Um, I found family members. I found, uh, you know, folks who had known them in high school and watched the change, things like that. Uh, even their wives had just were so practiced in being protective hmm. that as much as I'm grateful for the time with them, they weren't that helpful. It really was people from the outside. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing how you'll find that while I don't think there are, people are lying, they're sometimes telling you the way they remember it. But, you know, our police friends will tell us that that eyewitnesses to an accident are often the worst people to tell you what actually happened because it's obvious that what the, that their emotions have kicked in and they kind of slant the story. And um, that's kind of what happens with these lives too. So I like to get people who are just a little bit far away. Yeah. But, but, yeah, but anyway, the short answer is, yeah, met them both, uh, like them both personally. You would too if they were sitting here. They'd, they'd be great to talk to, but, um, uh, but very, very different personalities. Yeah. Your new book uh, asks the question, Why We Must Demand Religious Clarity from Our Presidential Candidates, which is fantastic, by the way. I really Thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you. Uh, you devoted an entire chapter to writing on the faith of Hillary Clinton. And one of the most thought-provoking things you wrote in regards to her faith was, and I quote, the fact is that she is among the most religion-oriented politicians of our time, end quote. Uh, considering how very relevant she is to the season of politics we're in, can you talk a little bit about Hillary Clinton and her faith in relationship to the message you're trying to communicate in the book? Yeah, I, I believe that though we've been taught in our universities and in, our, in, our, in the philosophy that dominates our Western world, especially America, that religion is going away, that it's less of a factor. The truth is just the opposite. We live in a very religiously charged world, and our American politics is very religiously charged, even though the press is not that good at dealing with it. And uh, many, many people would even deny that that's what I've just said is true. So it's interesting that if you really want to understand Barack Obama, you've got to understand his religion. Now, some people laugh and say, what religion? He doesn't have any religion. Well, he does. And what he is is a very liberal Protestant Christian. Well, Hillary Clinton's very much the same way. She is, in my opinion, and this is the kind of statement I tend to make that gets, gets people upset with me, she is among the most faith-based politicians of our generation. And um, it's just that her faith is not... Traditional. We, we tend to think that if somebody's faith-oriented, they're going to be, you know, conservative, and um, maybe maybe that would make them right-wing politically. So we're surprised that someone on the left could be described that way. But she is, by her own uh, admission, a social gospel Methodist, um, which means that she leans very much to the social impact aspect or or of edge of the Methodist Church. And as most people who know anything about religion in America know. Uh, if you're Methodist, that, that word, the word Methodist, can mean anything. It can mean uh, everything from people who don't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus to people who are basically, uh, you know, uh, evangelicals and uh, you know, charismatic Pentecostals. So the word is so big it houses everybody. But for Hillary Clinton, she was inspired by uh, the social impact side of the Wesleyan story, mm -hmm. of the stories of John Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles Wesley and so on. 
So that's been her orientation. Um, and if, if you track her career, you pay attention to her faith, you find that she was dramatically influenced and mentored by a youth pastor uh, in, when she was a teenager who got her reading some of the trenchant literature of the 60s and 70s. Um, she went to Ivy League schools where there were counterculture trends that shaped her profoundly. Um, and, you know, her whole career, she's been very faith-oriented. She got in trouble as First Lady for having a lot of preachers, even people in the occult, in the White House. She had an embarrassing episode with one woman who was a medium. medium. Um, but when she was in the Senate, she thought nothing of just taking the heads of Republicans right off by quoting the words of Jesus and telling them they were denying their faith and preaching at them on the Senate floor. So she's, she's very much religiously oriented. Now, the challenge is... You know, what is the content of that religion? It's kind of the same questions that I had to raise about Barack Obama. Yeah, she's a Christian. Yeah, she's a Protestant. Yeah, she orients to the Christian faith. But there's a version of the Christian faith that some folks wouldn't recognize as Christian. Right. So Hillary Clinton, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just being political here. I'm saying, saying this in a religious context. Um, I'd like to sit her down and say, ma'am, could you please draw a line between your faith and what you believe about abortion, between your faith and what you believe about, uh, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, which she does believe in. Uh, between your faith and immigration policy. All of those things are things that are in the mix. So the bottom line without getting into all weeds is she's definitely a believer in Jesus. She's definitely a believer in the Christian faith, but it's definitely uh, a left-leaning politic that she draws from that Christian faith, and that's why she can be so confusing and even maddening to people who, uh, uh, you know, who are paying attention to her today. Okay. At the end of your book, uh, and this is sort of in regards to what you just said, at the end of your book are three speeches made by presidents of religion and politics, uh, which I really loved. <laughs> this uh, It's uh, one from JFK, one from Reagan, and then Obama's called a renewal speech, which was honestly for me probably the most intriguing, though I identified more with Reagan's. Uh, and one of the big takeaways of Obama's speech was uh, when he says, I may be opposed to abortion for religious reasons, but if I seek to pass a law banning the practice, I cannot simply point to the teaching of my church or evoke God's will. I have to explain by abor why abortion violates some principle that is accessible to people of all faiths, including those with no faith at all. And in his speech, you really get a taste of the balancing act that politicians play in trying to maintain so many different belief systems as well as theirs. So my question is, do you think a president honestly can wholeheartedly remain true to God, faith, and the church when governing such diversity, often forced you know, to compromise principles for policy? Or does he or she uh, you know, have to check it at the door when they enter into office? I don't think they have to check it at the door. I think they have to articulate it in different terms. Yeah. Uh, for example, I can, I can, I'm never going to run for president. I don't want to. But if I did run for president, I would be a pro-life candidate and a pro-life uh, president, but I wouldn't get up and just quote verses of the Bible uh, in my speeches. Right. I think there's good science um, and good rational reason uh, to be uh, to hold my views. And so, uh, you know, whether I'm in the White House or on the Senate or the, or the House floor, uh, I would articulate that uh, in a way that, as Mr. Obama said, and I think that was a, a very wise statement he made. Um, that 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 would be palatable uh, even to uh, not the non-religious. Uh, and so that's the challenge, and that's often where Christians in, foreign, in public policy positions uh, fail. They're so used to thinking in terms of thus saith the Lord, which of course I'm saying I'm a Bible-believing Christian, so I have no problem with that uh, at church or in our background thinking. 
But then when I step, you know, when I, when I go on to CNN or I go on to Fox and do, do what I do, I, I might mention the scripture as an explanatory note, but I'm not going to make a case based on scripture on CNN. Yeah, because you can lose them. You absolutely can lose them. And, and, and by the way, if it's God's truth, then it's got other parallel supporting truth. Yeah. You know what I mean? In other yeah. words, uh, again, I use the, you know, uh, use the example of abortion, not that I'm just, it's my one issue, but I'm, I'm, I'm pro-life because Scripture says so, but I'd probably be pro-life even if Scripture didn't say so. And, and uh, I was just looking at the science. I mean, that's just where I am right now. Well, my point is uh, I'm not going to ask somebody to accept my quoting of Scripture um, to, to affect their view of abortion. I, but I will ask them to, to uh, understand my citing of science yeah. and to look at it in that term. So that's where we Christians have got to be better. Uh, there are there are times that, that literally I will give a speech in a certain context or appear on you know I, I mean I'm a regular commentator on Fox and CNN and that's the only reason I'm, I'm citing this right now and I will I will say something and later people come up and say well man what are you religiously and the reason is that I've made a case for certain positions but I haven't done it from the perspective of faith right now now talking to my Christian friends or even in another a different kind of context where they're saying, hey, bring your faith to the fore and tell us what you believe about this and why from, from your faith. Hey, I'm happy to hit away. <laughs> yeah. know, I'm looking for that opportunity. But um, but I think that the, Mr. President Obama in that speech, he wasn't president at the time he gave it, but but in that speech, he said something important. Now, he I think he overemphasizes our diversity and, and democracy. The fact is that you know, the majority of American people do hold certain core views, and we should stick with those. But nevertheless, he's, he's challenged us to articulate what we believe in a manner that an atheist would understand and respect. And I think that's a good challenge for all of us who are people of faith. Yeah. You know, um, JFK says, you know, said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And at the DNC the other night, Obama made the statement, democracy isn't a spectator sport. You've got to get in the game, which I agree with 100%. Um, I've stayed away, I've stayed as far away from the political gibberish as I can because it's been really heated this season. Just even if you watch it on social media, it's been crazy how mad the country seems to be or at odds. But myself, my frustration has not been with the parties or the candidates, but it's more with the people. And my frustration is that if you really look at it for three and a half years, most of the country is totally immersed. And there's shows on Netflix, working out, vacationing, social media, making a living, raising kids, whatever it is. And then come time to vote, all of a sudden everybody comes out of the woodworks to argue and complain about what they're not getting out of America. And I believe the candidates we're looking at, as disappointing or uninspiring they may be to people, are more of a direct reflection of the passivity of the democracy as a whole. And that's not sexy for people to hear, but am I crazy or is that a fair statement? Well, you are crazy, and it is a fair statement. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. Um, yeah, I, you're, you're singing my song because um, I I had Republicans tell me that they're mad that Mr. Trump is running uh, and, and is the nominee, and I say, look, he is an exact representation of what most Republicans are. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and good or bad, good or bad, free market oriented, prosperity oriented. But no, if you're mad that he doesn't give back to the country. Uh, or you, that, that's what you believe, and let me ask you, do you give back to the country? Um, when when people gripe to me um, about the kind of leaders that we're getting or where things are, I'll often say to them, you are you are one of the most privileged people on earth. I mean, basically, if you're living in America and you're not way below the poverty line, you're living in the top 5% of anyone who's ever lived in the history of the world in terms of your comfort and your safety and so on. 
And so my question to these people is, what are you giving back? Where do you volunteer anywhere? You know, I, I'll sit in the South with my relatives and they'll just gripe and gripe and gripe. And I'll say, just suddenly when I've had enough, I'll just say, you know, where do you, do you, do you do anything? Do you endorse a candidate? Do you work at a, at a, at a halfway house? Do you feed people? Do you do anything to make a difference? Or do you just write that others aren't making more the difference that you want? Right. So left, right, and center, um, I do think that we, we need to realize, um, whether we're speaking as Christians or speaking as Americans, that we have a calling to make a difference and serve in society. And that what, 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 what to me is the most important thing I can say to your audience is that the situation is still malleable. Uh, it's not fixed. It's not permanently corrupt. It's not lost. It's not... You know, America's just going to fall apart and you know, be deleted from the pages of history. No, the question is, will we get involved and make a difference? I mean, as horrible as this recent season in America history has been with the shootings of both black young men and the police and so on, look at the response. <clears throat> look at what people are doing. Look at how people are now trying to make a difference. Um, this thing is, the, the verdict is not in yet, and we can all make a difference. we just got to stop sitting there and, you know, watching our... You know, binge watch our favorite Netflix show and think somehow that America is going to change as a result. We yeah. got to do both: enjoy our lives, live our lives, raise our families, but at the same time, get out there and make a difference. And sometimes that's protesting, and sometimes that's feeding some people who need it, and sometimes that's giving some money, and sometimes that's sacrificing some time and dealing with some things. And yeah. I'll just say one more thing while I'm ranting here, and that is, I I had a whole bunch of people I was with not long ago talking about how. Uh, blacks are treated in America. And I, I looked at them and I said, do you even have a friend who is black? Do you know uh, a, a black person? You know, I go to a church of 4,000 black people, largely black people in Washington, D.C. And I know this sounds old school, but way more than half of my friends are African-Americans. So, so whenever anybody starts going off and giving opinions about how blacks ought to be treated, I, I often say a little humorously, well, maybe if you knew one, <laughs> you know, maybe if you go find one, I'll tell you what, I will rent you one of my friends for an evening. Of course, I tell my black friends I'm saying that, and they just laugh. But just just get in, cross the lines, have a friend, meet an immigrant. In Nashville, meet a Kurd, you know, where there were, there were so many Kurds here. Uh, do something that makes a difference. Don't just sit around and gripe. So uh, short answer is, yeah, I certainly understand the response of people who were turned off by politics, but the nation is more than politics. Uh, the, po the politics tends to reflect what the nation is, and I think the nation can still be molded. Yeah. So the the lesson from your book is to get involved. Don't wait every four years just to vote and then take a vacation, and to really, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you know, what are some practical ways when you talk about demanding religious clarity? What are some practical ways the average American can do that? Yeah, you know, it's pretty unbelievable what's possible for the average person. The average, I'll just say, soccer mom. Uh, just just at home, busy with the kids, she can she can send out a tweet with the right hashtags, and the campaign will see it. I've been sitting in the room where presidential candidates are reading the Twitter feed um, with the with the hashtags that bring the tweets uh, uh, of various Americans before their eyes. Wow! I've, I've watched while speeches are crafted. Um, you can write blogs. You can write uh, op eds for your for your local paper. Um, you can ask questions and, and raise issues online. You can't believe how sensitive the campaigns are uh, to online. And just uh, like I think we're now 101 days as we record this, about 100 days from the final election this year. Um, and I'm not sure when, the, when this broadcast airs, but anyway, as we're recording this, we're about 100 days away. 
you're you're going to have the candidate so much in your community, you're going to try to run them off. I mean, they are going to be doing open air <laughs> forums at your university. They're going to be coming through for speeches. The likelihood that you can be in the room with one of the candidates and ask a question is greater right now than any time in American history. Wow! So the possibilities are endless. And you know, it's uh, I, I recently urged a high school, a bunch of high school kids, <clears throat> go online, use the right hashtags and. Uh, and Twitter names and so on, and, and ask your questions. And sure enough, some of the candidates answered their questions individually online and then showed up at their high school. So uh, we are at a moment when we can raise our issues, ask our questions, get the answers that we need more than ever, uh, We even if we're busy with other things and in other seasons of life, as we were discussing earlier. So the possibilities are endless. That's great. Stephen, I've got a few more questions just in closing um, that I just want to ask about, you know, faith and then personal life as well. Uh, when does Stephen Mansfield feel the most alive? Oh, that's a great question. Um, either at prayer or on the racquetball court. <laughs> nice. uh, how's that for a conflicted man? <laughs> um, yeah, probably in prayer, uh, which I wouldn't want to go any further detail. I mean, that's just our own, everybody's got their own you know, life before God. Absolutely. Um, but then also on the racquetball court, which is a basically a miniature form of war. Um, so I, I love those two. Now, you know, there are other times too, when my wife's loving on me and, you know, we're having a quiet meal together, all of that. But, but the two times that I find my soul aflame is when I'm trying desperately to use my backhand to beat my opponent on the racquetball court. <laughs> and, uh, and when I'm before the Lord, that's great. How are you growing today? I am growing largely by having a group of men around me um, where we're investing in each other's lives. We've got what I call a free fire zone uh, where we can say anything to each other that needs to be said to make us better. And we also have a lot of fun along the way. So having a band of brothers around me uh, is helping me grow. And the area that, that I'm being helped to grow the most uh, probably has to do by, with the area of understanding how I impact the young. Um, I've got some young guys in my life and they're saying, man, we desperately need older guys like you. I'm not a father yet, maybe in that sense, but I am an older brother and they're helping me understand how that impact can be managed. And so it's, it's a really good time. That's great. You know, our successes are, or lack thereof are closely related to the power of habit. What are some healthy habits you've embraced over time? Uh, great question. I, um, do certain things first thing in the morning. Um, I read scripture, I pray, I listen, I, I read, um, certain, certain books. Um, and I think through my day before I even get out of bed every morning. It's, that's been a habit of mine for years. It makes a huge difference. That's correct. Um, so I don't just get up and go eat or turn on the TV. I spend about, I don't know, it can be half an hour to an hour, uh, getting myself oriented before my feet even hit the floor. Um, I work out every day, uh, which has been very, very important for me. Um, and I also have a weird discipline with apps. Um, I have an app that uh, delivers a, a classical music song to me every day. Oh, wow. I have an app that shows me a, a piece of great art every day. Um, and I do some other things like that so that I, I'm bringing, even if I'm locked in a room researching or I'm on a plane, you know, just, just flying along, along. Um, I'm having some culture, some history, some art brought before my eyes every day. So I have about five or six apps that I go to every day that, that feed my soul, feed my imagination, feed my artistic sense, and uh, take me back a little bit in history. And all of that is very refreshing to me. I love that. Any habits you've had to remove that you can 
think off the top of your head? Yes. When, when, when you talk about somebody doing the line um, in, in culture, it usually has to do with cocaine. Uh, for me, it has to do with lines of Oreos in the bag. <laughs> um, so I've had to give up the Oreos. I've had to give up some sugar. You know, when you get a little older, as you'll find out eventually, um, you, you, what you used to eat ends up on your backside. And so I've, I'm having to discipline myself about my eating a little bit. I mean, I don't eat like a pig, but just the stuff I used to eat, I have to get rid of. Um, I've had to work out a little bit harder. Um, and, you know, even though I booted my kids out of my house a long time ago when they went off to their careers and finished college, um, I find that, frankly, and I'm just teasing about that, of course, uh, I, my kids need uh, time with dad more than ever because now they're adults. Yeah. And, and they need the adult dad, so to speak, rather than the you know, teenage, rowdy, pick-up football game kind of kind of dad. And so that's where I'm putting a lot of my time in, and that's been a bit of a change for me too. What do you, what do you want to be most remembered for? I would like to be most remembered for uh, a man who was passionate about Jesus but had a profound impact on his society because he could navigate both the outer culture and the church. In other words, I can bridge both. Yeah, that's do, great. Do it in literature, do it on television, do it in my speaking. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the thing I'd like to model, that I could be a passionate man of faith, but not have being an evangelical be a brain bypass, you yeah. know, um, that I can actually um, be of impact. So it pleases me very much, and I'm not bragging, but it pleases me very much to be a New York Times bestselling author, to be a regular commentator on Fox and CNN, to write for Huffington Post and, you know, Fox and all that, um, and still to be a hand-raising, totally devoted to Jesus guy who just knows how to find another set of language, another way of communicating uh, to the broader culture. And that that's, in addition to whatever in, any individual book of mine does or any individual TV show or whatever, that's, that's the main thing I hope to model for this generation. Yeah, that's inspiring. What's on the horizon for you? What are you excited about? Well, I'm, I, in about a month, I'm going to Saudi Arabia to do some lecturing. That's very exciting to me. I do a lot in the Middle East, but I've never done anything in Saudi Arabia. Um, I have a companion book coming out. As you know, I do a lot with men. I have a book called Mansfield's Book of Manly Men. And I've written a little <coughs> companion book called Building Your Band of Brothers uh, that will be out here in about two weeks. And so those books, those two books together are really kind of a, meant, meant to have a major impact on men. So I'm, I'm excited about where that's heading. And, um, and, of course, just the regular stuff that I do, you know, commenting on elections, writing books, speaking, lecturing, all that's exciting to me. But I'm really engaged by what I do with men. And the fact that we've got another book coming out that's going to feed these conferences that we do, I think, is, uh, is a major thing. Yeah. Stephen, I just want to acknowledge you and say thank you for, for leading, uh, inspiring the, the church and the culture, for raising up sharpening leaders, and just for the honor of you being with me today on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Man, it is a privilege. Now, you know, our, we have a common friend in my nephew, Aaron, and I want you to tell him that he now owes me a steak since I did that. <laughs> if you ever see him. Steak, okay? Yeah, if you ever see him now that he lives in Timbuktu up in Minnesota. Lord have mercy. It's too cold up there for me, man. He's going to have to come down here to buy me that steak. But anyway, we'll have fun either way. Hey, great talking to you, buddy. Yeah, you too, pal. And I will post all of your links and links to your books and everything. So hopefully you'll see some more... Uh, some more follows and 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 tons of income coming in due to this podcast. <laughs> Great, great. Well, I love the podcast. I hope it goes really well for you. Steven, I appreciate it, pal. All right, man. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye.